0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the network. And every so often, I like to step. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the network. And every so often, I like to step back in front of the microphone. I have a different role at the network right now, so I don't do many interviews, but I uh, see a book, a book crosses my desk that catches my eye, and I think, you know, I'd like to talk to that person. And so it was with Bob Brody's book, Playing Catch with Strangers, a family guy reluctantly comes of age, because I'm a family guy who reluctantly comes of age, so I I hate to say this because it's kind of a cliché, Bob, you had me at the title. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Marshall.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Just a few words.
1: Yes, I, I um, I'm a, I uh, I'm married for 39 years to uh, uh, to a wonderful woman named Elvira. I have uh, a son, Michael, a daughter, Caroline. I live in Queens. Uh, I'm 66 years old. I work uh, as a as a public relations professional, but I prefer to say that I'm a writer masquerading as a PR advisor. Um, I've been working in PR for 27 years now, but I've kept writing on the side the whole time because uh, I'm just unable to stop. And uh, I still believe it or not, uh, get out there and and play basketball. Um, Nowadays, with kids one-third my age, one-fourth my age, and uh, it's still fun, and I'm going to keep going until I have to stop.
0: Playing catch with strangers, yes. Um, We hear Queens right behind you, actually. This happens every time we interview someone in New York York City. The (laughs) sound of sirens is just, uh, it's like the music of New York City. It really yeah. is.
1: It, it, Queens never goes quiet, uh, <laughs> it's never like <laughs> like a city, and uh, it's it's a big difference uh, uh, from other places. Oh, I've, it is. I've, yeah, it that. is. I mean, I just uh, a few weeks ago came back from Italy, which is where my daughter lives and my wife spends much of the year, and uh, they're, they're in a small town in southern Italy, and it uh, it's just it's just peaceful. It's just slower. It's, uh, it's people say hello to each other on the street. It's a, it's small town life as I imagine you find it in the United States too. And as I remember it from my boyhood, um, growing up in the New Jersey suburbs. So,
0: yeah, that's right. I mean, I live in uh, Western Massachusetts and, uh, you know, the noisiest things here. Actually the birds are really loud. These
1: sparrows
0: <laughs> are really loud in the morning here in Western Massachusetts. So anyway, let me ask the traditional first question on the New Books Network, and I'm always interested in this and I know the readers are too. Why did you write Playing Catch with Strangers? Why did you write this book?
1: Well, I might as well confess that I never intended to. <laughs> some 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 ten years ago, uh <laughs> Somebody I worked with had seen an essay of mine that I had published and said, you should do a book. And by that point, I had only recently turned back seriously to doing essays. And so maybe I had 10 under my belt, 15 under my belt. And I thought, well, okay, I appreciate the idea, but do I have a book in me? Do I have enough material for a book? Um, and I appreciated her her ambitions on my behalf, um, but as the years went along, I published more essays, and I was writing about my mother and about my father and about our kids and about my wife, and um, eventually I realized that piecemeal I had pretty much written a memoir, and so that's how it came about, almost by accident, if you will, um, in that I had written these pieces and decided, I think these Pieces can be collected and maybe trimmed here and there and fused together over there and uh, made to fit so that it would all be of of a piece, more or less, um, and get it in some semblance of chronological order so that it takes me from early boyhood uh, right up through the present day. And so that's that's how it came together. And uh, I was lucky enough to find a publisher, Heliotrope Books, um, whose editor uh, b- b- loved the idea and... And uh, worked with me on bringing it all together, so that we could decide what belonged in the book, what should be left out. I had published a, a quite a few essays, and, and so some we left out because they were they were just a, a poor fit, and, uh, and then others were extended, and I, and I wrote a, a, some new material as well, just to sort of spackle in in places. Um, and so ideally it uh, it it came together.
0: Spackle. That's a great metaphor for anyone who's done any (laughs) spackling and I've done a lot of it, Um, but that's exactly it. That's a great metaphor, Bob. Good one. Uh, I'm going to steal that without attribution. Uh, Feel free, because I have no life, right? (laughs) All right. So uh, one of the things I mentioned in the pre-interview we were talking that I very much admire about the book, that it's written in, um, I would call it an episodic style. I suppose a literary critic might say that it's in vignettes. I don't know vignettes, but that really what you do is you tell a series of stories, short stories. So this is a result of the fact that it's written on the basis of a bunch of separate essays
1: is that right that's largely the case
0: yes mm-hmm. i see yeah
1: well exactly it's, right it's lovely so it, i mean the book is is uh i mean w- we're calling it a memoir and it is a memoir um the agent i work with suggested we call it a memoir in essays mm-hmm. so i guess we could uh, I guess split hairs over it, but uh, my hope is that it is that it reads as a as a memoir, and because of the way it's broken up, because the different pieces have titles, maybe it feels a little bit like a collection of essays and uh, to a certain extent it, it's that too but uh, but it's brought together for a single purpose everything is try i try to tried, tried to unify everything
0: well one very nice thing about it is you can pretty much open to any page and find one of these essays or vignettes or episodes and you can read it and you, mm-hmm. you don't have to read the thing the whole way through if you don't want at that point. And I know that when I was reviewing it earlier, I my eye was being caught by ones that I had seen when I read it a while ago. So that's a very good... I think I, I like this style very much because each one is a kind of self-contained thought, if I can put it that way, in the montane kind of way of an essay. So that's all very good. So I'm trying to think how to approach the book. And it is a memoir. It does go chronologically through your life. Maybe... One way to do it would be for you to highlight for the readers some of the essays or moments or vignettes that were of particular moment to you that are in the book. And we can start with your childhood. You're, I love this, you're Bob Brody from the Bronx. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) See, isn't that great? (laughs) Full alliteration. Yes, that's lovely. So maybe you could start by talking about your childhood.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I have to offer up a disclaimer because I know it sounds dramatic to say that I'm from the Bronx, and I am proud to say I'm from the Bronx, but I only lived there for two and a half years, the first two and a half years of my life. My parents had an apartment uh, close to Yankee Stadium on uh, Sheridan Avenue, and uh, so I have absolutely no memories, no conscious memories of, of living in the Bronx uh... we we were part of that uh, great migration uh... to to the suburbs that uh... that took place in the early nineteen fifties and people went to new jersey people went out to long island and it was people from the bronx and people from brooklyn it was people who lived in apartments and wanted houses and so we settled in a in a house in a town called fairlawn in bergen county new jersey um, which is where I spent my boyhood. And, um, my, my childhood was marked as, as much as anything else by, um, my upbringing, uh, uh, with, with two parents who happened to be deaf. Mm-hmm. And so that was a challenge. It, uh, it, I uh, needed to adapt to that. It was a source of, uh, all kinds of, um, uh, struggle for for both me and for my parents uh... i mean at the very least um, my mother um, who who is profoundly deaf and who i'm happy to say is was ninety years old the other day um... she uh... she became uh, she was stricken with spinal meningitis at the age of one and it left her uh, profoundly deaf for life and so I, I kind of, I mean, I went through my childhood, um, uh, making phone calls for her to her mother and to her brother and to others. I was kind of a go-between and, um, I felt self-conscious when my friends came over and and met her because she sounded like a deaf person with the sort of voice that you often hear, uh, on a in a deaf person, and um, I I spent uh, I guess a lot of my childhood feeling it's just sad for her, uh, just this unbearable sorrow uh, that that she had suffered this, uh, this injustice. Um, and so I, I, I don't mean to get, uh, too psychiatric here, but, um, but that was, that really, I think growing up with deaf parents, uh, has to have defined me as, as, as much as, as much as anything else. And I think really is connected. I, I do think there's a something of a cause and effect relationship between, my growing up with deaf parents and my, my wanting to be a writer.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things I found fascinating in the book, and if I think I remember correctly, is that your parents met at a, was it a dance or a meeting or for deaf people?
1: That's right. That's right. I didn't That's right. Know such
0: things existed.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, there was, yeah, there was a, Society and they were at a hotel and it was a party. And my mother, my father, my future father saw my future mother uh, across the room. And I guess it was the Hollywood story. He, he turned to a friend of his and said, nah, I'm going to marry that girl.
0: Wow. I just like it. I found out there were such things from your book. And I'm like, America, what a wonderful place.
1: <laughs> one story that. I got. <laughs> Go ahead. Exactly. One, one story I, I was lucky enough uh, somehow to have gotten from my parents is this. um when my father was courting my mother, he, he lived in Newark and she lived in the Bronx and one day he decided to visit her without her knowing about it. She had no idea he was coming and he uh, tried to get into the building where she lived on the Grand Concourse in uh, in the Bronx, but my mother was home alone. There was nobody there to hear the doorbell. There was nobody there to, to hear anything, so, um, so my father uh, decided that um to, to climb the fire escape right and he climbed the fire escape uh, up to her window and opened the window and climbed into the room and and uh, my mother saw him and the reason he he explained the reason he did what he did was that he wanted to see her
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so uh so I imagine she, she she was quite shocked but I imagine she said to herself I guess I guess he's serious.
0: Mhm. Now they came from kind of different worlds did they not?
1: They they did. My um th- my my mother uh grew up uh with a father who was who, who uh, I mean my my grandfather had had gone to college in the 1920s he became a certified public accountant and he was a businessman he had an office on 42nd street so he lived a professional life and he went to work in a suit every day um my father on the other hand um his father was left school uh, at the age of uh 13 or 14 he came to the United States by himself um and from? uh worked worked at any job he could find and eventually brought over 14 relatives uh and where, where housed, did they
0: come from remind me
1: uh they were from russia mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, austria
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um so, uh, and my, and my, my other grandfather, he was a saloon keeper. He was a saloon keeper and then he bought his own saloon and then he was lucky enough to make friends with someone who invested in real estate and he began, began to rest, uh, invest in real estate and became very comfortable. Um, but uh there was there was a there was a gap in education, and there was a a certain gap in style. I mean growing up in Newark is a whole lot different from growing up in in New York City. My maternal grandparents um at least later in life anyway, as i remember they they went to the opera and my grandmother took me to museums um and so there were there was a sort of cultural difference too
0: and one 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 side is Jewish and the other's is Catholic is that right?
1: No, oh, wait, no, wait. They, they they were everybody was Jewish. Okay. Um the difference uh, that you might be thinking about is that my wife was raised as a Catholic.
0: Oh yes, okay. Right.
1: And yeah. uh and uh so uh yes. So yeah, so that's uh and and we we've managed to bridge that divide such as it is.
0: Well, you know in your story, I mean you mentioned this a little earlier, is very typical of a certain group of people. They're not like my I'm from Kansas originally and um, part of my family came to the United States from well, it wasn't the United States at the time. They came to the colonies from England in the 18th century, and then the other part came from Germany in the 19th century and went to Ohio, and we ended up in the Midwest. But your story is very, you know, it's it, typical is not the right word, but it's it's a it's a kind of classic American story of immigrants who moved to the United States come they live in the Bronx, and by the way, this is I just was reading about this is before the Bronx was burning, if you remember the Cosell line. this was the kind of stable upwardly mobile Bronx that i I don't know if it even exists anymore but and then they moved to the suburbs, which is again a very kind of typical upwardly mobile thing to do and then the, and then what I also like is the things that you do as a teenager, which are things that you know again are kind of they're symbolic of assimilation, if I can put it that way. You play basketball, and you play in a rock band. I did both those things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, so me and you, I, you, Yeah, can you talk I a little bit about I think I needed to become an adult before I could look back and realize just how all-American my boyhood was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I certainly had no idea while I was growing up that I was doing what lots of boys across the United States in the 1950s and 1960s were doing, and that was – getting together to play with friends and play stickball and yeah. go to makeout parties and right, right. wonder what girls were all about.
0: and um, Yeah, I was get, doing the same thing. I was doing the same thing in Kansas. I really was. And, and I, I don't know about you, but in my adulthood, I'm 56 and I, um, I look back on my childhood and I think that it was pretty wonderful actually, that I yes. was just very lucky at the time. I hated everyone.
1: <laughs> but, uh, I yeah. yeah. We're we're definitely simpatico on that score. Uh, I, I I doubt. I thought of my childhood as particularly wonderful as I was going through it. It certainly had its terrific moments. There were there were wonderful highlights. I would put uh, girls and sports at the very top of that right, list.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I wish I could say that I felt the same about school. Um, or about having to do anything that I had to do, but um, but uh, there, there was a, there was a lot to recommend it. But I, I look back on it now, and I and I uh, it, it's I guess we now have the opportunity to to deign it um, a, a good childhood. Um, I mean, you just figure that whatever it took to get you where you are now, okay, that's that's what it took.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I was just rereading *Siddhartha*. And uh, that's pretty much happens to Siddhartha. He has to go through all this stuff in his search for adulthood, or i don 't know what he was looking for, but in any event, so you played a you 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 play the drums, is that right the drums as I recall correctly
1: the drums, and yes. we were in a band, and it was very short lived I guess I lacked the commitment or the leadership ability to keep us together, but we had a few practices, and there were two cool. guitarists they were wonderful and I just loved it and so we briefly had these fantasies about being who the Dave Clark 5 yeah. any yeah. the Beach Boys we, we we would take anything. Yeah, everybody um, had
0: those fantasies. Well, I don't know about everybody, but I certainly had them as well. And then the other thing which really sticks with you is basketball. Can you talk about your introduction to that and
1: Yeah, my my father uh happily enough and I think this happened purely by chance i doubt i asked for it my father put up a uh, a uh, a hoop in our in our driveway he put up a pole i remember he planted the pole in the in the cement and it took some doing and it was regulation height and he put up a a backboard with a rim and it was very official and he measured it and it was 10 feet high and so and i was 8 years old and so uh, i started to shoot around and my father occasionally would shoot around with me um, he, he had uh, enjoyed sports as a as a young man himself, and and so, um, and I, I just I just took to it. I was I was smitten with basketball. I was I just and I wanted to get good at it. And for a long time, I was anything but good at it. I was skinny. I was short. I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, wondering if guys were ever going to pass me the ball or for that matter, just pick me to, to get in a game. And, uh, and so I just, I just, kept at it. Um, and it was really only around maybe my early twenties that I was finally good enough probably to make the high school team that I wanted to make. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, a a late bloomer in that respect, but, um, but I'm, I'm happy to, uh, yeah, I'm, I just, uh, basketball came to be something that uh that I wanted to I wanted to master it was just it was just important to me to to be good at something and so it became a re- refuge of sorts for me it became a place of I mean the courts were a place where I could go and uh practice something and try to get good at it so that I could feel important and uh, and accomplished and um yeah. and so it kept me in good stead.
0: I, I really uh, appreciate your use of the word refuge because for so many years in my own life, I played basketball from very young age. And and um, and and essentially, I retired about 10 years ago, I think, when my kids were first born. And uh, I played three or four times a week my whole life. And it really was a refuge. It was someplace I could go. Where I knew what to do, and I was accomplished at it, and I I had respect, and it had drama, and it, 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 for a short period of time, my troubles ceased. I don't know if that's quite the right word. It was they were replaced with other troubles.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what. I mean. what you're, yeah. yeah, and there and there's a there's a there's a chapter in the book about playing stickball. Uh, I think it's called All the Time in the World, and it's about how when you were playing stickball as a kid, nothing else mattered. I mean, the right. the rest of the world just dropped away, that right. and that still is part of the appeal of playing any sport, whether it's. And I I like to play tennis a lot now too. I mean, when that ball is coming at you, you have no time to think about uh, anything else, and. Um, so you're just singularly focused and it, it gets you out of your, out of your own head and, um, and has that, that therapeutic value. And it's, and it's fun. I mean, it's fun to move around. It's fun to run. It's fun to chase after a ball and, and try to score. So. Uh, I mean, once the fun goes out of it, I'm done. But yeah, but no, the that's fun, exactly right. The that's fun right. has yet to go out of it.
0: Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think you put that very well. And, and I think one of the great blessings in my life is the fact that I picked up a sport that I could play for almost all of my life. And as I say, I may still go back and play. I'm still pretty athletic, but I don't, don't have time to do it now. But Many, many times when I was low or I didn't know what to do, I could just retreat, so to say, to the court, and I knew just what to do. And time would stop, and my troubles would go away, and as I say, they would be replaced by other troubles, like, why is that guy dribbling? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's passable. Yes, right. Please, you cannot bring the ball up. You cannot dribble. Um, so, so yeah, they're replaced by other troubles, but I just consider that one of my great I don't know if you know. I I I did it. Did it stunt my maturity a little bit? I suppose it did in a way because I did tend to act in an immature way sometimes out there. But on the other hand, it did give me a great refuge. But in, in the case, let's get back to your life. Your life did go on. And uh, as a, a, another question, I wanted to, or thing I wanted to talk about is you end up in New York City uh, in the seventies, um, nineteen seventy five. You moved there in your first apartment. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's what, right. What was it? Can you tell a few stories from that period? You have one particularly dramatic one. So sure.
1: Well, I mean, I I had been living at home, and one day my father came by and asked me how my search for a job was going. I was still looking for my first job after after college, and uh, I have to admit, I had been I, I I could have been looking harder than I was. Uh, I guess I I lacked a certain incentive. Uh, there I was in New Jersey. I had my own room and um, I was still seeing friends and I was still enjoying myself. But my father said he was going to start charging me rent. And I realized that he was probably sending me a message. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to discern that. Uh, really? Thank Thanks. Incredible. Incredible powers of perception, yeah, right. <laughs> um And and, and so I, I I got myself an apartment. Uh, I, I had little idea really about which neighborhood I should live in, but I found an apartment on East Seventh Street between Avenues A and B. Oh um, it was one hundred and fifty dollars a month. It was a studio apartment. Uh, it was toward the back of the building on the second floor, and I thought. Okay, I've got I've got my own apartment. My 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 grandparents were absolutely aghast that I had moved into this neighborhood. And I remember one night we took a drive uh, uh they drove me home from their apartment. They were then living on 79th Street and 2nd Avenue, the Upper East Side. And they were I could just tell from the looks on their faces they were thinking to themselves, "Why did Robert as they called me why did Robert move here this is this is crazy why because i mean in, in the 1970s it was very funky down there i mean it was dangerous yeah. to cross from Tompkins Square Park where it was just drug dealers people people looking to cop drugs uh, all kinds of violence broke out i mean the whole city was just going down the tubes it was on the it was flirting with bankruptcy and uh there were uh, uh doomsday headlines every day um and the subways were failing and just the whole city was 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 uh, on this um was uh just uh, sliding into oblivion and so um so i I had this bright idea that I should take this apartment and five weeks after I moved into my apartment a um i was mugged and more than that i was i was stabbed um a guy with a knife came down the hall and and uh wanted to get into my apartment just as i was carrying my sunday times and some groceries i was about to open the door and he caught me in uh in an, in a compromising position and um i i i said i was not going to let him in and um he he managed to uh, to, he poked me with a knife, and that managed to persuade me that <clears throat> that maybe I should let him in and uh luckily the the damage uh that that he did to me was was a lot less severe than it could have been. I did go to the hospital I was in intensive care briefly, but I'm sure that was a precaution um, uh he He poked me in the chest, but I know he only intended. To scare me, and he, he succeeded uh, by every measure in, in doing that, um, but, but if he had wanted to hurt me, if he had really wanted to hurt me, he certainly could have. Mm-hmm. Um, he just wanted to get in and get whatever I had that he could take, and so he took my TV, he took my radio. He left me my typewriter because, believe it or not, as we're there, he said to me, you probably need this for your business, mm-hmm. and at one point he handed me a towel for uh for my wound because i was bleeding from being stabbed um so it was really uh an an unusual incident and um and certainly uh marked me and and made me i, I wrote another piece forty years later uh i, I wrote about it um and it, it was the it was the first time i was I was published in the New York Times, a very exciting milestone, but I wrote about it 40 years later just to look back and reflect on what it had meant to me and realize that it really had turned me kind of combative and that I kind of went through the city with something like a chip on both shoulders and my eye my, my, always looking uh, in the rearview mirror to see who might be. It's not that I was some paranoid schizophrenic or anything, but um, let's just say that uh, I, I wanted to be ready for anything. And mm-hmm. if, if it was going to make trouble for me, I was going to I was going to want to be able to make equal trouble for them. And that was actually part of the reason I'm sure I I kept playing basketball because it kept me fit and it kept me ready.
0: Yeah, no, I understand what you mean, innocence lost in that way. I've never had anything like that happen to me, to be honest with you. But I can only imagine how frightening it it, it must have been. And it it was a, a time that the 70s, the late 70s, especially in New York, as you say, I mean, there was a lot going on son of Sam and the weathermen blowing themselves up and the city is failing and they're not collecting the trash and it's really hot. And mm-hmm. I was just reading about all this and I thought this must be absolutely fascinating, you know, and the punk revolution is going on. And it just have been, I mean, I, I, I tend to, you know, again, having been being in Kansas at the time, I, I looked upon these things as in, I, I guess with um, a certain amount of admiration, almost, it must've been just terrifying to be in the middle of it.
1: Well, I mean, it did it did um it could be entertaining. I, I know that sounds weird to say, but in the apartment uh, building where I lived, uh there was a young woman who it turned out was a prostitute. And so uh I certainly uh was I mean, growing up in suburban New Jersey, um, I, I had no familiarity with, with right. uh, suits, much less did I expect to, to, to live in an apartment building with one down the hall. So, mm-hmm. uh, when we actually became friendly and then there was a kid who lived in the building, an eight year old kid who, uh, would, would light who would light the uh, trash on fire in the, in the incinerator. So we kind of, we had a, we had a junior, we had an aspiring pyromaniac on our hands.
0: <laughs> yeah. You can learn a lot about life in New York city, but you see, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, many people listening to this might be like, you know, he gets stabbed, moves to New York, moves to the city, gets stabbed, but he stays.
1: Right. Exactly. Your whole life. Right. You know, I just I I would I, I'm much more inclined to chalk it up to naivete than I am any sort of bravery.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I, I, I suppose I just did not know any better because honestly, it never occurred to me to move out of New York City just because of that incident. I figured I guess I figured to the extent that I thought about it at all, that uh, that this is the sort of stuff that can happen, that now that it's happened once, I guess the odds are in my favor that it's never going to happen mm-hmm. again. And so we got that out of the way, and from here on, we'll be in good shape. Mm-hmm. So you go to work, and let's talk about you.
0: You get a family pretty quick. There, you have a family. Um, can you talk? Well, about the transition I
1: mean, to that? it. it uh, I, I moved into New York City in '75. I met um, my future wife uh, that year. We we uh, became uh, in, engaged and uh, we got married in 1979 so that's a few years later and then our first child came along in 1983 so so it it rolled out over over the course of a few years but uh yeah i mean i was married at 26 and i was a father at at 31 mm-hmm. i th- that was probably about par for for my generation yeah. and um if not a little late in some respects yeah. but uh, and so uh so we got going and it was it was a totally different life. I mean, there was the life that I lived on my own and now there was a life uh uh that I lived where I had uh real responsibilities and it made uh, it made all the difference.
0: And how did you negotiate all that? I mean, you know, one of the themes in the book is about growing up. How did how did it change you when you all of a sudden found all this responsibility and you know, I know that in my own case I put all of that off for a very long time because I I really liked college and I wanted my life to be college forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So go ahead. Can you talk a little bit about that that maturation process? Because it's dealt with extensively in the book.
1: Yeah, I think I think the the whole concept of needing to be an adult left me kind of gobsmacked because um, I'd I'd grown up being quite selfish, and uh, it believe me, it gives me no pride to say that and and much shame but uh I I grew up I think it's fair to say in a in a somewhat selfish environment where people thought of themselves and uh that applied to to most everyone um and so I so I thought of myself first and above all and uh then then you get married and and it's a whole different, uh, dynamic. There's, there's another person there and you realize that you're now living with this person and need to be able to, uh, you, you want to make her happy as I wanted to make my wife happy. And, um, you realize that, uh, that you're, you're, you're now kind of coming up against, um, an everyday challenge to, to compromise mm-hmm. and to, uh, to, to, to make sure that uh, that somebody else is is happy too and um so that was that took a that took a big adjustment and i have to say that uh it um it i'm sure it took me a while i know that my childhood selfishness carried over into adulthood uh uh for 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 quite a few years um and it took me a while to get the the hang of uh this idea that you needed to be responsible that you needed to listen to other people that sometimes maybe you needed to behave differently um and and that you had to look out for others and uh that certainly happened in spades when our when our children came along uh i mean for a long time and when i say that i was selfish i mean that i was also i was just spoiled i was i was uh i was I was raised to believe that uh well I guess I was encouraged to believe that I could kind of get away with anything and for years I did and maybe had the misbegotten notion that uh that I could do so forever Um, and, uh, and soon, eventually learned otherwise. And I think the big turning point for me was when our second child was born. I was 35 years old, 36 years old, um, when Caroline was born. And, um, it just became, I just, it it just hit me. Okay, we have two kids now. It's, it's time to get serious. And, and so at the age of 35, I developed a viable work ethic. Um. (laughs) that's how long it took me to to finally get around to it but I, I i can say with some degree with 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 some certainty and and some authority that uh that work ethic has now uh, kept me in good stead for the last 31 years well, that's good i'm glad about that i
0: i can uh, very much identify with what you're talking about i um as i said I put off adulthood for a long time and it is in hindsight because of selfishness. I didn't really realize it at a time because I just always thought like, you know, what is best for me? What should I do? And people were asking me what I was going to do. And for me, and, you know, even my first, uh, my first marriage, I was divorced. Um, we had a long relationship, 20 years, um, I really was very selfish in that relationship. I mean, it was just all about what I was going to do, and it wasn't out of any chauvinism or it wasn't sexist or it wasn't i don't know anything like that it wasn't religious. It was just that what we were going to do was what I was going to do and it just it just occurred to me that was the case and i d- di- i didn't I never really recognized anything different and but I look back on it and I think, yeah, it's very selfish. I mean, including right down to playing basketball, which I, you know, wherever we lived, I insisted that we live, you know, someplace close to the gym or I was going to go to the gym this many days a week or, you know, things like that. And it was very, um, what does Marshall want? That was the important thing. What about Marshall's career? What about what Marshall wants to do? And yeah, I look back on it and I had a different sort of turning point in my own life. I won't go into it, but I did, uh, I did straighten up and fly right <clears throat> after a while, so could you tell us a little bit about um maybe your work experience how did you you say you developed a work ethic at a certain moment and and how did that change you
1: well i just i mean I buckled down and uh i I, um, I had freelanced for ten years, and i think certainly um fueled my my uh, sense of independence being able to kind of call the my own shots and be my own boss. Um, but it, I realized that, uh, my freelancing was, uh, I was, I was doing okay. I was getting published. I was making some money, but it was nowhere near enough. And, mm. and, had two children now, and uh, the question was whether my wife was going to keep working or maybe she was going to cut back to four days a week or three days a week. And uh, I just, uh, I mean, I simply started working harder, and I got myself a part-time job, and then eventually um, a full-time job. And that's when I started working in in public relations. That was that was 27 years ago. Right. Right. And so it was the
0: realization that you had these responsibilities and that you'd been living this way. That That's really what was the sort of turning point for you. I'm, I'm just interested in how people change in this way. I'm I'm always curious about personal transformation because people get in ruts and they just tend to stay there. But you didn't do that.
1: I, I just I I you could you could almost say I had no choice. I mean, either I was going to flail and flounder. And uh, function as uh, as a mediocrity, or I was really going to try to excel, and I was going to try to do it to make my wife proud of me, and to and to make our kids proud of me, and to try to be some kind of a hero uh, mm-hmm. to my family and and to myself. Um, it was a matter of trying to fulfill my own expectations for myself. I mean, I had grown up with this. Idea that uh, that maybe I had something special to offer, and um, that that uh, <laughs> had had yet to be borne out um, for 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 many of those yeah, early laughing. years of of yeah. my adulthood. There were little highlights here and there, yeah. um, and and flickers of promise, but um, but I had yet to really um, show any consistency, and yeah. so I wanted to be able to do with my work and with my family, what I had managed to learn to do on the basketball court, namely hit my shots. Right,
0: right, right, right. Well, I tell people, you know, about basketball, it's all about role playing. You have to figure out what your role is out there. You know, not everybody's going to be Michael Jordan, but I laughed when, you know, you mentioned the, you, you know, this notion that somehow you have something special to offer. Cause I, I kind of felt that as well. And, uh, one of the things I've learned in adulthood that I don't have anything special to offer, and I'm really not that different than, I won't speak for you, that I'm just not that different than other people, um, but I do have something good to offer, and that's really enough.
1: <laughs> you yeah. know,
0: I'm, there's nothing special about Marshall Pell. I can tell you that for certain, <laughs> but I do have something I, good to offer, and I can help people,
1: true. and that's a good I, thing. I, that's enough. Sorry to disagree, but I, I doubt that's true. I honestly <laughs> believe, and I know this sounds like I should be an evangelist or something, but i think everybody has something special to all offer. right
0: okay i i i i we, we we won't belabor the point but i i just i thought that i really well okay i'll just leave it at that yeah i but one of the one of the moments in my maturity was realizing the ordinariness of much of what i did and mm-hmm. and, and really learning like on basketball you know i i don't bring the ball up because i don't dribble very well but i'm a very good shooter so that's kind of my role. I'm a good defensive player. I can do that. But, you know, I leave these things to other people, you know, and I actually coach some basketball now. And I tell the kids, you know, get the ball to a guard. That's the first thing. Get the ball to a guard. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's hard to give the ball up.
1: It's, when you're yeah, playing it, catch with strangers, it, it's hard to give it up. You want to keep it. You could apply that all to family life, too, because you're talking about role playing. So, I mean, here you are. Now you're a husband. Yep. So that's different from being a single guy. Yeah. And now you're a father. Yeah. And that's certainly different from being somebody who has no kids. Yeah. And so there's a role to play. And the question is, are you going to measure up? Uh, and are you going to measure up to your satisfaction or we're not, so it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of like the the clock is ticking, and you better deliver. That's what you know.
0: I think that that is exactly right. So, could you talk a little bit about your experience with fatherhood and your relationship with your kids? There's lots in the book about that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was just a, an absolute um, revolution in my thinking and a, and a revelation because uh, I, I realize now that they're i mean as i did with my wife that there were people i cared about just as much as i did about myself and and most likely more um and uh i never knew that uh, that i could feel the love that i felt the depth of love that i felt and the commitment that i felt um it just it just kind of blew me away i was enraptured from the beginning with uh with both our kids um and just uh, tr- tried to be as good a father as i possibly could be there there were times when i think i i did okay i certainly introduced our kids to to sports and i and i read to our kids um and i i tried to kind of follow the uh the playbook um to make sure that our kids got a good education and were healthy and had their vegetables and all the rest um <laughs> it uh i mean i think it's it's like what a, what a lot of fathers go through but uh i think something you discover and it just kind of dawns on you is that um your ambition to be the perfect father is doomed from from the start because it's just it's impossible somehow to be uh, as, as good as you'd like to be, you'd, you'd want to be always kind and you never want to be raising your voice. And you certainly never want to be caught arguing with your wife in front of the kids. But, uh, I, I, I failed on those fronts on, on, on some occasions. And there were times when there was disruption and, um, there were misunderstandings. And, um, so I, I think the, the kids, um, I, th- I, you know, I think they, I think eventually it, it all, it all worked out, but, um, but, uh, it's, it's an education to be, to become a father. It's, uh, I, I, I did not seem to, um, I, I needed some, some time to, to figure out how to make sure that it fit in with everything else and to, to give the, our kids the, the time that they needed and the attention and the affection. Um, but, uh, I think, at this point, uh, I, I dare say they would say that I, I did a respectable job, and, and I, I can live with that. I'm sure they would. I, I
0: learned a tremendous amount about myself when I became a parent and and one with this business about selfishness, but also the degree to which often I'm not in control of myself because being a parent gives you – an image of the stark relief between what you should do and what you do do because you know what you should do you should not yell at your kids but suddenly yeah. I will still find, I'll find myself and I'll be like yelling at my kids and I, and I just will stop for a second in this kind of Buddhist way where you watch your own thoughts and I'm like look at me what am I doing how did I get here why am I doing this and it just feels so natural there you are yelling at your kids and like wow it's just this moment of realization that you're just really not in very good control of yourself often. And uh, I try not to pass too harsh judgment on myself when this happens, but you know, that, that kind of moment really, I, to me, it, it was a real revelation that I, I, even my best intentions really to be a good human were just broken upon the rocks of parenthood. That's one thing I really learned. The, the other one I'd be interested what you hear about this is that, Uh, You know, I I have an idea of how I'm supposed to, mold might be too strong a word, but guide my kids. But one thing I learned is that they're little people very early. They they are not like you, and they are not like their siblings. They they have independent personalities that you did not put in them, (laughs) and they are just going. And I just find this an amazing thing. I'd be interested to hear what you think about
1: it. Yeah, I think maybe one of the bigger breakthroughs I ever made as a father was just coming to accept my kids as they are. Yes, exactly. Well put. Uh, Because we all have an idea of how our kids should be, and they should be excellent students and excellent athletes, and they should be perfectly behaved and polite at every turn. Um, But then you find that, okay, your your kid, uh, let's say your son is... Is uh, likes to likes to make wisecracks and and uh, and happens to be good at wisecracking and. Do you know my son because he does. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that gets under your skin, but then you say, "Okay, that's yeah. that's Michael. That's Michael being Michael." And yeah. and. He's brilliantly funny, and our, our daughter is like Michael in a, in a, in a, in one respect at least, in that uh, she, they, they our kids are stubborn, and and so for a long time I, I just saw it as resistance, resistance to change, resistance to advice um but then i just came to realize that i would be nowhere without stubbornness right and most people who've accomplished anything would be nowhere without stubbornness and stubbornness if it's if it's if it's in the service of persisting at something that might bring some good that's that's an attribute to be prized so Coming to accept your kids as they are um, and and cherishing it and just relishing every moment of it um, that that was that was kind of a big a big moment for me uh, yeah. coming to realize.
0: Yeah, I, I I still am kind of in the middle of it. I know that I have my son Isaiah plays hockey. I never played hockey, so I mean I also coach him in basketball and some things. But you know he and I are let's say stylistically very different athletes. He he likes athletics enough where I was kind of fanatic about it, but. I still find myself, you know how sometimes you hear about these like, oh, a soccer father or a hockey father, and I'm like, I'm not like that guy. And then I have thoughts that make me exactly like that guy. <laughs> and I, I, can't, I can't get away from them very easily. But he has his own thing that he does. He's an independent personality, and the persistence and consistency of that personality is just something to behold. I don't think I put it in him. It's just him. That's the way Isaiah is. And I I think it's great. I enjoy spending time with him. I do. I really do, but it it just, it just was a really fascinating thing to me to watch that. And we we're we're running we're running out of time, but there's really something I wanted to, to last question I wanted to talk to you about cuz we talked about this in the pre-interview and I just find it fascinating. It's, there was a long period of time in your life when you didn't really communicate to your family. And I had a similar sort of long period in my life as well. I like could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. I mean, I'll give you the gist of it. I felt, to a certain extent, marginalized, shunned, shunted aside, um, a sort of black sheep. And it was interesting because uh, I think our whole segment of the family felt like that, both on the maternal and and uh, paternal sides. And by that, I mean my mother, my father, my sister, and I, uh, we were kind of the black sheep And uh maybe it had something to do with my parents being deaf, maybe there were other factors, but at any rate I just I felt wronged. I had a a sense of being uh just um unjustly treated and so uh in in my characteristic maturity i i pouted about it i pouted about it and i i kind of slinked off thinking that okay now i'll punish everybody by <laughs> using myself from the room right they'll miss me terribly <laughs> and they'll all spend 24 hours a day wondering why what's wrong with bob and did we do something wrong and so on and it was just it was unbelievably foolhardy so I broke away from my family I broke away from my mother for a time I broke away from uh... my uncles and aunts and um and 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 it went on for in the case of my mother ten years in the case of uh... some other family members a little bit longer and i really thought i was doing myself some good i thought first of all i was protecting myself from further injury um and, and and without quite realizing that i was now inflicting a new injury on myself mm-hmm. namely complete alienation from my family and and also i thought that i was kind of teaching them a lesson they would they would get to better understand and appreciate me now that i was out of the picture um and so i broke away and and it was and i i in retrospect, I mean uh, and so for a long time, I asked myself, am I doing right is this is this a mistake um, And I never stopped debating that question uh, until finally I decided this just no longer feels right I mean I'm now I'm now getting older, uh, my relatives are getting older, nobody is going to be here forever. If we're going to resolve this, I think we better start trying to resolve it soon so that we can be a family again and so i started reaching out and uh there was a thanksgiving uh in in 2013 where i went down to florida and we had a kind of reunion with a lot of people and before that i reunited with my mother and we reconciled and became on became on good terms again and um and so uh it brought me a, a lot of peace to, to have made that effort and to have uh, succeeded at it. Of course, it's never perfect, uh, even after you do that, um, because once the, the break is made, something kind of stays broken, and you never can regain the years lost. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a pity of a dimension that's beyond anything I can measure. Um, that's, just, that's just a, a shame. And, um, but that's sometimes how it goes. And if you learn from it, then maybe you'll be the better for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. That was very eloquently stated. I I know that I felt a lot of the same things when I sort of broke off contact from my family. I held a really deep resentment that I had somehow been wronged or misunderstood. And if that wasn't kind of patronizing and superior enough, I also did feel like I was teaching them a lesson and that they would horribly miss me, which I don't think they really did. But I, I um I d I did feel those things. And I felt very like justifiable anger. That's the expression that comes that I felt justified in doing these things. And in hindsight, I just wasn't justified in doing these things. And it was, in my case, it was a species of selfishness because it just meant that I didn't have to do a lot of things that I didn't really want to do anyway. And uh, it it was kind of an excuse for my own solipsism. And 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 yeah, you don't get those years back and you don't get that time back. And, and um, again, I'm reminded of Siddhartha, whose own son has to go through everything he goes through and, I don't know if, you know, I always wonder, Bob, if I tell my kids this, then they won't do it. But I kind of think if I tell my kids this, it won't matter because you kind of have to go through it. Yeah, well. That's an upsetting thing.
1: Yes, it's, I I can imagine nothing that I would take as a greater threat than that.
0: Yeah, it would be
1: terrible. I mean, I know that I tortured my mother.
0: Before she died, I tortured her by not contacting her, and uh, I'm very ashamed of it. And I don't—I uh, tortured her, and it was just—it was inhumane, is what it was. And um, and my sister reminds me of that every time I talk to her. <laughs> yeah. as well, as she should. <laughs>
1: I, I know what you mean. I mean, you can be—you can be plagued by these memories. And uh, I mean, I remember I had gone a long time without talking to my. Um, paternal uh, grandmother, my father's mother. And I called her one day out of the blue and, and she was so happy to hear from me. I mean, her voice cracked. Uh, She, she, she was no doubt crying at the other end of the line or about to, Mm -hmm. she was, and I I could hear it. Mm -hmm. I could hear how happy she was. And and it hurt me so much to realize that she was that happy because I had failed to call her for such a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's again, that's well put. That's quite a story. So, well, uh, thank you very much for talking to us today. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network. We ask everybody, or at least a lot of us ask this question, and that is, what are you working on now? Do you have something else you're... Doing there at the writing desk, or maybe something else. I don't know.
1: I would like to write more books. I would like to do memoirs in particular. I'm certainly going to keep doing personal essays, but I'm interested in writing um, uh, at least a couple of couple more memoirs in particular. One would be based on a blog I had called Letters to My Kids uh... for some time i wrote uh... i kept a journal uh... handwritten in which i wrote letters to my kids about their upbringing and about my life and then i gave them those journals as a christmas gift and eventually i turned it into a blog in which i was calling on other parents and perhaps mm-hmm. grandparents to do as i had done and to write letters to their own kids and try to preserve personal family history for future generations so i would like very much to try to develop that into a book Um, The other uh, one other idea I have is to is to chronicle my career in public relations uh, because I've had uh, some interesting experiences with some colorful clients and colleagues, um, celebrities and Fortune 500 CEOs. And I I think it would be, uh, among other things, a good opportunity for me to kind of tear away the curtain on, on public relations without being scandalous about it uh, and and say this is how it works, this is the field you've all heard about because the truth is I've worked in PR for 27 years and I have yet to come across all that many people who really have a sense of what it is and indeed a lot of people will say, so PR, that's like advertising, right? Or so you're in the media or something like that. And um, and so uh, I think uh, it would be interesting for people to understand just how integral and instrumental public relations is, um, particularly in in getting the news out in that we get the news before the rest of the world gets the news and we get to be the ones to call the reporter about it. uh, And then it winds up. in the newspapers and on TV so so I'd like very much the opportunity to do that and to kind of uh, address the struggles I went through making the transition from journalist to public relations professional I never thought in a million years I was going to go into PR but it became uh, I needed to become gainfully employed PR was a practical uh, option for me I was able to transfer a certain set of skills from one profession to another um, and so, uh, so, so there's that. And I, I think I have an idea for yet another memoir, but we'll see because I think my daughter may have the better story, um, on that front. And I'm, I'm going to concede that to her if that's what she wants to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, those sound like terrific projects and I wish you uh, the greatest of luck with all of them. And, you know, when they're done, uh, call me up and we'll interview you again. Okay.
1: Thank you so much, Marshall. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, good. Well, let me tell everyone who's been listening to this podcast. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And today we've been talking to Bob Brody about his memoir and collection of essays and vignettes and episodes, as we've called them, playing Catch with Strangers. And he's done a lot of that. A Family Guy Reluctantly Comes of Age. Bob, thanks so much for being on the network.
1: Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely.